And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. We announce to you a great joy. Habemus Tratcast, and you're listening to it. Welcome! It is our second episode, and you made a very good decision by tuning in. This podcast is going to be very informative as we talk about the true traditional Catholic doctrine on the papacy, on papal authority, and refute a typical argument made against the Sedevacantist position. In our first segment, we would like to address the objection that on our website we have referred to as the bad popes argument. And the objection is essentially that, well, you know, we have had bad popes in the past uh, that didn't somehow keep them from being real popes. So why can't we have bad popes in the present? And uh, they would still be true popes. They don't stop being popes just because they're bad. And then oftentimes a reference is made to the case of St. Peter and how he denied Christ uh, during the Passion. And uh, that's usually how the argument goes. Now, the uh, first thing that is to be said about this is that we must distinguish bad popes from non-Catholic popes. A historical example of a truly bad pope would be the case of Pope John XII. He was truly a very immoral man, and uh, he was most definitely a true pope. However, what we have in our day and what we've had since the death of Pope Pius XII is a completely different case altogether. We're not simply talking about bad Catholics. We're, we're not talking about uh, people who hold and profess the Catholic faith, but are simply not living the faith they profess. We're not talking simply about sinful Catholics. As a matter of fact, we're all sinners. Every pope from the very beginning has been a sinner, and it will always be this way. So, no, we're not talking about being a sinner. So, in a way, you can say each and every one of us is bad to a a greater or lesser extent. In one way or another, we're all bad Catholics, okay, in in that sense. But that's not what's going on here. What's different this time around is that the people in question, the popes in question, right, the, the supposed popes, uh, since Pius Twelfth, and that would be John XXIII, Paul VI, John Paul I, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and now Francis. What's different here is that these people do not actually hold or profess the Catholic faith. So right at the outset, let us distinguish a bad Catholic from a non-Catholic 
okay? This is extremely difficult because somebody who commits sins against the faith, at least certain sins against faith, becomes a non-Catholic. And as always, you do not have to take our word for this. We're going to quote uh, Pope Pius Twelfth, who taught about this quite beautifully in his encyclical Mystici Corporis of 19. 19- 43, and we uh, have the link to that on our Tradcast page. Just look for the second episode, Tradcast number 002, and there you will find the link to that. Pope Pius Twelfth taught as follows, quote, Actually, only those are to be included as members of the Church who have been baptized and profess the true faith and who have not been so unfortunate as to separate themselves from the unity of the body or been excluded by legitimate authority for grave faults committed. Nor must one imagine that the body of the church, just because it bears the name of Christ, is made up during the days of its earthly pilgrimage only of members conspicuous for their holiness, or that it consists only of those whom God has predestined to eternal happiness. It is owing to the Savior's infinite mercy that place is allowed in his mystical body here below for those whom of old he did not exclude from the banquet. For not every sin, however grave it may be, is such as of its own nature to sever a man from the body of the church, as does schism or heresy or apostasy. Men may lose charity and divine grace through sin, thus becoming incapable of supernatural merit, and yet not be deprived of all life if they hold fast to faith and Christian hope, and if, illumined from above, they are spurred on by the interior promptings of the Holy Spirit to salutary fear and are moved to prayer and penance for their sins. That is Pope Pius Twelfth in his encyclical Mystici Corporis, and the exact reference is uh, numbers 22 and 23. You can read that for yourself if you like. The encyclical is also available, by the way, on the Modernist Vatican's website, so you can even go there and find the same text there. So let's recap for a minute what we just read. The Pope made clear that not all sins are of such a nature as to sever oneself from the church, from the body of Christ. Some such sins that do that are schism, heresy, and apostasy. In other words, the schismatic, the heretic, and the apostate, in virtue of his sin, by the nature of the sin, ceases to be a member of the church. He's not just a bad Catholic. He is no longer a Catholic. And there's actually very good reason for that, uh, and that is that the Catholic Church, one of her distinguishing marks is, of course, her unity, and that implies unity of faith and government. Now, the apostate and the heretic profess a different faith, and therefore, they cannot be a part of the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church only has one faith. She does not have uh, differing faiths, different faiths that contradict one another. Okay, that that would not make any sense. And of course, St. Paul in chapter 4 of Ephesians mentions that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And I believe that is verse 5 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. So, 
It is in the nature of the sin itself, the sin of heresy and the sin of apostasy, that a man is thereby excluded from the church. It's very important that we understand the exclusion from the church is not just a punishment. Um, For example, uh, as would be um, being excommunicated from the church for procuring an abortion, okay? That is a punishment because of a very severe crime. But in the case of heresy, apostasy, and schism, the severing from the church, from the body of Christ, from the mystical body of Christ, is not simply a punishment, it is rather the natural, necessary, and logical consequence of professing a different faith, in the case of heresy and apostasy, or of refusing submission to the Roman pontiff or members of the church who are subject to the Roman pontiff, as in the case of schism. So, one's loss of membership in the church is due to the nature of of that sin, the sin of heresy, the sin of schism, the sin of apostasy. One cannot abandon the true faith and still be a member of the church, which only has one faith and which is not divided either in her faith or in her government. That is what Pope Pius Twelfth is teaching here, And any catechism, any dogmatic manual, any theology textbook will confirm that. So, it is these sins, heresy, schism, and apostasy, that sever a man by their very nature from the church. So, it could not be otherwise. There is no instance in which the sin of heresy would not, in fact, cut one off from the Catholic Church. This is not the case with any other sin. There is no other sin that of its very nature would uh, cut people off from the Catholic Church. So, for example, even really, really heinous sins like blasphemy, sins uh, that cry to heaven for vengeance, sins of the unnatural kind, really any any other sin uh, against the Ten Commandments, do not, however terrible and however foul they may be, do not of their nature sever a man from the Catholic Church. And so, with this very important distinction in mind, we can now understand why the argument that there have always been bad popes is really a bad argument and does not prove what it attempts to prove. Now, since a heretic, a schismatic, and an apostate is not a member of the Catholic Church, such a one obviously could also not be the Pope of the Catholic Church, since in order to be the head of the Catholic Church, I must at least be a member. In fact, on this very point, the Catholic Encyclopedia, published during the pontificate of Pope St. Pius X in the early 20th century, says the following, quote, Of course, the election of a heretic, schismatic, or female would be null and void, unquote. And this is really a no-brainer. It's not difficult to understand, and it makes perfect sense that he who does not share the faith of the church, he who does not profess that same faith, obviously cannot be the head of the Catholic Church. 
Now, we had already mentioned earlier the case of Pope John XII. He reigned from 955 to 963, and he was only 16 years old when he was elected. So, what does Catholic history say about the case of Pope John XII? I'm going to quote two passages here from Father Fernand Moray and his book, A History of the Catholic Church, Volume 2, published in 1946. In the first passage, Father Moray speaks about John XII before he became Pope, what kind of a man he was. John XII was actually royalty. His birth name was Prince Octavian. So with that in mind, here's what Father Moray says about Octavian. Quote, Nothing in his life marked him for this office, and everything should have kept him from it. He was rarely seen in church. His days and nights were spent in the company of young men and of disreputable women, in the pleasures of the table and of amusements and of the hunt, or in even more sinful sensual enjoyments. It is related that sometimes, in the midst of dissolute revelry, the prince had been seen to drink to the health of the devil. Raised to the papal office, Octavian changed his name and took the name of John Twelfth. He was the first pope thus to assume a new name. But his new dignity brought about no change in his morals and merely added the guilt of sacrilege." Unquote. So here we have a, a terrible picture of the man, Prince Octavian. It is really hard to imagine how he was even elected to the pontificate, but his sins certainly did not, as terrible as they were, they did not prevent a valid election to the papal office. So even though he was a, a terrible blasphemer, a, a, a terrible man of impurity and a glutton and so forth. Nevertheless, when he was elected, he truly and validly became the Pope. But watch what Father Moray says next, because now it gets really interesting and it shows a very good contrast to what is going on in our times. Quote, Divine providence, watching over the church, miraculously preserved the deposit of faith of which this young voluptuary was the guardian. This pope's life was a monstrous scandal, but his bularium, and by this he means the, the, the teaching documents he issued, his, his edicts and so forth, his bularium is faultless. We cannot sufficiently admire this prodigy. There is not a heretic or a schismatic who has not endeavored to legitimate his own conduct dogmatically. Photius tried to justify his pride, Luther his sensual passions, Calvin his cold cruelty. Neither Sergius III, nor John Twelfth, nor Benedict IX, nor Alexander VI, supreme pontiffs, definers of the faith, certain of being heard and obeyed by the whole church, uttered from the height of their apostolic pulpit a single word that could be an approval of their disorders. At times, John Twelfth even became the defender of the threatened social order, of offended canon law, and of the religious life exposed to danger. Unquote. Bam! Yes, thank you, Michael Boris. We keep Michael Boris back here for occasional comments. <laughs> Please excuse so yes, there can be bad popes, oh yes, and there have been before. 
and they were certainly valid popes. But see the difference. See the difference here. We're talking about popes, Catholics, true Catholics, who professed the true faith, who believed the true faith, and even though they did not act in accordance with it, nevertheless did not utter heresy. They did not believe false teaching. They did not profess anything that contradicted the dogmas of the faith. And that's the big difference to our time. So, yes, bad popes can certainly exist, but what we cannot have is non-Catholic popes. You see, our Lord never promised, and Catholic teaching certainly does not claim, that there will be a true pope at all times. That is simply not true. The church does not teach that. Our Lord did not promise that. But what our Lord did promise and what the church does teach is that when we do have a pope, he is guaranteed to be a Catholic because that is actually part of the definition of pope, right? He is the head of the Catholic church. He is therefore a member of the Catholic church. He must be a Catholic, just like a triangle must have three sides in order to be a triangle, right? And just like a bachelor must be unmarried in order to be a bachelor, it simply could not be otherwise. Otherwise, you have a contradiction in terms. But let's look at some Catholic teaching on this very point. As always, we don't want you to just take our word for it. The following is a quote from Pope Benedict XIV's Apostolic Constitution Pastoralis Romani Pontificis, and it was published on March 30th, 1741. Here is what Pope Benedict XIV taught. Quote, The vigilance and the pastoral solicitude of the Roman pontiff according to the duties of his office, are principally and above all manifested in maintaining and conserving the unity and integrity of the Catholic faith, without which it is impossible to please God. They strive also to the end that the faithful of Christ, not being like irresolute children or carried about by every wind of doctrine by the wickedness of men, may all come to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to form the perfect man that they may not harm one another or offend against one another in the community and the society of this present life, but that rather united in the bond of charity like members of a single body having Christ for head and under the authority of his vicar on earth, the Roman pontiff, successor of the blessed Peter, from whom is derived the unity of the entire church, they may increase in number for the edification of the body, and with the assistance of divine grace, they may so enjoy tranquility in this life as to enjoy future beatitude. Unquote. That was Pope Benedict Fourteenth. And if you think about what he's saying, the very idea of a heretical pope, of a non-Catholic pope, you, you cannot fit that into these words. It, it, it would make the words absurd. Okay, how could the pope, if he's a heretic, how could he maintain and conserve the unity and integrity of the Catholic faith? How could he ensure that the faith will, will come to the unity of faith if he himself does not share that faith and is not a part of that unity, but actually contradicts it? How could it be said, how could it truly be said that the Roman pontiff is the source of unity of the entire church if he's not a Catholic? 
Okay, it, it would really throw a monkey wrench into it all. It would make the teaching absurd. Now, of course, uh, there is more, uh, there is much more such teaching uh, found in the uh, documents of the popes and in, in, in the magisterial documents. Um, this was uh, Benedict XIV, and there's actually another good quote uh, by him from his apostolic constitution, Etsi Pastoralis, of May 26th, 1742, and he says, quote, The Holy Apostolic See and the Roman Pontiff have primacy in the entire world. The Roman Pontiff is the successor of Blessed Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, true Vicar of Christ, head of the whole church, father and teacher of all Christians, unquote. So again, if he's the head of the whole church, the father and the teacher of all Christians, how could that be so? If he's not a Catholic himself, how, how could he be said to be the head of that of which he is not, in fact, a member? Pope Leo XIII taught, of course, the exact same thing. In his letter, apostolic letter, Epistola Tua, to Cardinal Guibert of June 17, 1885, Pope Leo teaches the following. He says, to the shepherds alone was given all power to teach, to judge, to direct. On the faithful was imposed the duty of following their teaching, of submitting with docility to their judgment, and of allowing themselves to be governed, corrected, and guided by them in the way of salvation. Thus, it is an absolute necessity for the simple faithful to submit in mind and heart to their own pastors, and for the latter to submit with them to the head and supreme pastor." Unquote. Now, this teaching of Pope Leo XIII makes no sense if it were possible for the Pope to be a heretic. Let's look for a minute at the bull Unam Sanctam of Pope Boniface VIII. It was published on November 18, 1302, and Pope Boniface declares as follows, quote, Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff, unquote. Here, too, it, it would be absurd to say that it is necessary for salvation to be subject to a heretic. In fact, we have an obligation to flee heretics because they would poison us by their false teaching. They would endanger our souls. So again, we see that the idea that the Pope can be a heretic leads to absurdity. Let's look at another quote from Pope Leo XIII. In 1896, he published his beautiful encyclical Satis Cognitum on the unity of the Church, and he says, quote, Union with the Roman See of Peter is always the public criterion of a Catholic. You are not to be looked upon as holding the true Catholic faith if you do not teach that the faith of Rome is to be held. Unquote. Again, we see that the idea that a pope can be a heretic is absurd, because in that case, it would be false to say that the faith of Rome is to be held. And union with the Roman See of Peter would actually not be a guarantee or a sign of orthodoxy or a, a sign of being a true Catholic. Like Pope Leo XIII says, you are not to be looked upon as holding the true Catholic faith if you do not teach the faith of Rome. But if the faith of Rome is heretical... This is absurd. 
Okay, the same faith cannot be Catholic and heretical at the same time. So once again, we have absurdity if we believe that it is possible to have a heretical pope. And let's look at one more quote here. It is also from Pope Leo XIII in an allocution of February 20th, 1903. He taught, quote, The strong and effective instrument of salvation is none other than the Roman pontificate, unquote. So, once more, the quote makes no sense if it were possible for a pope to be a heretic, because obviously a heretical pope is not the strong and effective instrument of salvation. In fact, if he's anything, he's the strong and effective instrument of damnation, and uh, that's exactly what's going on with Francis. Now let's look at a quote from the First Vatican Council of 1870. It was ratified by Pope Pius IX, and it taught as follows regarding the connection between the papacy and the true faith. Quote, To satisfy this pastoral duty, our predecessors always gave tireless attention that the saving doctrine of Christ be spread among all the peoples of the earth, and with equal care they watched that wherever it was received, it was preserved sound and pure. Therefore, the bishops of the whole world, now individually, now gathered in synods, following a long custom of the churches and the formula of the ancient rule, referred to this holy see those dangers particularly which emerged in the affairs of faith, that there especially the damages to faith might be repaired where faith cannot experience a failure. The Roman pontiffs, moreover, according as the condition of the times and affairs advised, sometimes by calling ecumenical councils or by examining the opinion of the church spread throughout the world, sometimes by particular synods, sometimes by employing other helps which divine providence supplied, have defined that those matters must be held, which with God's help they have recognized as in agreement with sacred scripture and apostolic tradition. For the Holy Spirit was not promised to the successors of Peter that by his revelation they might disclose new doctrine, but that by his help they might guard secretly the revelation transmitted through the apostles and the deposit of faith, and might faithfully set it forth. Indeed, all the venerable fathers have embraced their apostolic doctrine, and the holy orthodox doctors have venerated and followed it, knowing full well that the see of St. Peter always remains unimpaired by any error, according to the divine promise of our Lord the Savior made to the chief of his disciples. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and thou being once converted, confirm thy brethren. Unquote. Does this sound to you like the Novus Ordo Vatican? No, no I didn't think so. All right, we have one more quote. This will be the last one. Pope Pius IX, his encyclical Inter Multiplicis. Quote, Now you know well that the most deadly foes of the Catholic religion have always waged a fierce war, but without success, against this chair of St. Peter. They are by no means ignorant of the fact that that religion itself can never totter and fall while this chair remains intact, the chair which rests on the rock which the proud gates of hell cannot overthrow, 
and in which there is the whole and perfect solidity of the Christian religion, unquote. Okay, I really think we've, we've made our point here. You simply cannot believe these things, all these quotes I've been giving you, simply cannot adhere to all this and still maintain that Francis is a true pope that Benedict XVI was a true pope, that John Paul II and, and, and all these modernists that have claimed the papacy since Pius XII, that they could have been true popes. It's just not possible. The chair of St. Peter is the guarantee of orthodoxy in the church, and it cannot be replaced by uh, some desk chair in Minnesota or in Virginia. Diabolical disorientation. Diabolical disorientation. Diabolical disorientation. Yeah, well, no, I'm sorry, but diabolical disorientation is, first of all, not a theological concept at all, has nothing to do with sacred theology, so you could never use it to argue, to make a theological argument. And number two, you certainly cannot use it against Catholic teaching. All right, so... I think we've made the case very well here that it is absurd to think that somebody like Jorge Bergoglio, Francis, could actually be the Pope of the Catholic Church. And to wrap it up, yes, bad popes indeed are possible. We certainly had them in the past. But a non-Catholic pope is an impossibility. It's an absurdity. It would absolutely destroy Catholic teaching on the papacy. Now, I don't know about you, but I could certainly use a break right now, and that's why we'll be back in just a few moments. Tradcast. Ignore this podcast at your own risk. Tratcast is a production of NovusOrtoWatch.org. We watch the Vatican II Church so you don't have to. Go to NovusOrtoWatch.org, NovusOrtoWatch.org, and see for yourself that the Vatican II Church is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Sorta Watch is back, tratcasting like there's no tomorrow, because, what do you know, there just might not be. We covered a lot of material in the first segment, so in this second portion, we'll just take care of a few housekeeping items, so to speak. But first, to recap the first segment, a pope who is a bad Catholic is still a valid pope, but a papal claimant who professes a different faith from that of the church is not simply a bad Catholic, but not a Catholic at all, and therefore not a valid pope. Sins against the faith cancel a man's membership in the church, whereas sins against morals do not. Now, to be sure, an immoral Catholic pope who dies in his sins, even though he dies as a member of the church, will most certainly not be saved. He will go to hell. So we're not saying that membership in the church is somehow sufficient for salvation, far from it. 
But such a such an immoral pope does die a valid pope, whereas heretics, apostates, and schismatics die outside the church. Neither the immoral valid pope nor a heretical papal claimant will be saved. And remember, any documents we've quoted and talked about here today, you can find linked on our Tradcast homepage for this show. It's episode number two, so you're not left hanging, okay? We don't want you to think that we just say stuff and you have to believe us, all right? The point is that you can research all these things for yourself, you can look them up, and we want to facilitate just that. Tradcast. You are listening to Tradcast, the traditional Catholic podcast on the internet. Now, if you're new to Tradcast and this is your first time listening, please make sure you also listen to our inaugural episode, which you can access at our website, tradcast.org. Tradcast is a production of Novus Ordo Watch at novusordowatch.org. It is free of charge and always will be. You can subscribe to our podcast feed to ensure you will never miss an episode. We are syndicated through iTunes as well as Stitcher. You can subscribe there, or you can simply subscribe through any other podcast client you may like. The RSS feed is provided on our homepage at tradcast.org. You can also simply listen right there on our webpage through the embedded player or the embedded YouTube video if you prefer. The only really important thing is that you do actually listen, okay? Now, looking at the clock, I have to say... Sorry, but we have come to the end of our second episode. Aww. Yes, sorry. We know, we know. You can't wait for the next one. So, um, actually, we have a suggestion. Why don't you get busy and tell all your friends about Tradcast? That'll shorten the wait for you, make it a little easier, and it'll help us tremendously. You can do that by email, via Twitter, on Facebook, or through Skype, or however you like. Okay, we appreciate your help in this matter. And oh, by the way, in our next podcast, this is important, barring unforeseen circumstances, we will respond in our next podcast to a rebuttal posted by Eric Gajewski of the Tradcat Night blog regarding our post on Pope Leo XIII and the recognize and resist position. Eric Gajewski criticized what we had put up, and we will be more than happy uh, to respond to that. It'll be in our next uh, Tradcast episode, unless, of course, that gets preempted by uh, something else, something unforeseen. With with Francis and the Vatican, really, you just never know. I mean, you, you just don't know what might happen. It's very difficult to plan anything uh, also on the blog because you, you never know. He, he has foot-in-mouth disease, you know. And uh, for all we know, he might just uh, decide to declare that there are four persons in the Blessed Trinity or something like that. At, at this point, it just wouldn't surprise me. Also, we are going to have more newsy items in the future where we talk about current events in the Vatican and the Novus Ordo sect in general. Right now, we're not doing that just yet because we can't quite tell yet being new to this podcasting thing. We can't quite tell yet just how much time elapses between the recording of this show and its actual release. So we want to make sure that we don't uh, end up talking about something that by the time you listen to it is really not all that current or all that important anymore. And this is it for today. Thank you for listening. 
Please pass the word about Tradcast on to others and tune in again for the next episode. I am the man with the perfect face for radio. Until next time, may God bless you.